Hello everybody, I am Lucia Matuonto and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. Today, we are driving into a conversation with Greta Yuli, a cultural anthropologist, teacher, teacher professor, and author. Her latest book, Everyday War, is out now. So, my dear Greta, welcome to the RV. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. My pleasure, Greta. I I was browsing your website, reading about your work, and I have to tell you that your work is just amazing. Thank you for accepting oh. my invite. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. So, Greta, you are originally from Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Can you share a bit about your hometown with our listeners? Yes. Yeah, so I I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. My family's home was very close to the University of Wisconsin. And as a result of that, the kids that I went to grade school with came from all over the world. And it was just a wonderful environment to grow up in because I got to know uh, people from Indonesia and, gosh, uh, Japan and Germany. And I really feel like the seeds of my anthropological career were planted then because, you know, I discovered that it's possible to feel at home when you're not in your own home. And that was the, the prelude to my anthropological career, which has been spent, you know, a lot um, of my research has been done in in foreign countries, um, uh, Ukraine, Uzbekistan, uh, many other places. Yeah, when we have contact with different cultures, I believe our mind gets more open and mm-hmm. we understand each other better. It's it's my opinion. I've been living in many countries also, different countries for many years. And I feel that I blend better. You know, I have a better way to relate with people. I agree with that. I agree with that. It sort of, it expands your awareness of, all the wonderful ways to be in the world and organize your life. And it, I, I agree that it makes you a much more accepting person and also a more curious person. I'm not done learning at all. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And today you are in Washington. Am I correct? That's correct. Yes. Washington, I, DC. Sorry. I just, um, I just accepted a, visiting scholar position for one semester with the uh, Carter School of Peace and Conflict Resolution, uh, which is a part of the George Mason University in Arlington. And I'm I'm looking forward to continuing my research there for the next few months before I go back to Michigan. Uh-huh. Ah, yes, because I know you live in Michigan and uh, 
you know, I've been to Michigan once and we had a storm, a snowstorm. So I didn't see much. I spent the week, the week, the whole week that I was there battling snow and dreaming of getting better to my my room. So I need to go back to Michigan. Yeah, yeah. It's a really beautiful place in the summertime. Yeah, during summer, maybe I can go there during the summer. So Greta is the first time I I interview a cultural anthropologist. Please, can you shed some light on what a cultural anthropologist does? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that what comes to mind when you say anthropologist for many people is archaeology, Indiana Jones, um, archaeological digs. And I'm not that kind of anthropologist. I'm a cultural anthropologist, which just means that I study living uh, societies, living cultures. And um, I learn from people's stories as well as my own experiences living within a culture. And so Anthropology is really just the art of empathic listening, letting go of preconceived notions and stepping inside um, another person's world to experience it from within um, through their stories and, you know, for however long or short that that's, that's possible. And yeah, so anthropologists learn from both listening to people but also experiencing their way of life. And that experiencing of another group or person's way of life leads to what's called like situated knowledge, right? It's like a deep kind of knowing. It's so interesting, Greta. It's really, I I really like the work you've been doing. And I saw that you are also a refugee advocate. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how did your childhood experiences shape your interest in war and international migration? I believe that was the fact that you had contact with people from different cultures and countries, or there was something else that made you to decide for this area? Mm. You know, there's um, that's such a wonderful question. I think that my early exposure to other cultures played a really important role. And also, I think that, you know, um, I became interested in um, when, when I was in grade school was when the Vietnam War was ending. And I don't know if you recall the Pulitzer Prize winning photo of a girl fleeing her village after an an napalm attack. Yeah. So that was on the cover of Life magazine. And when I saw that on the coffee table in my Madison, Wisconsin home, I was very troubled because I wondered where were her parents and why weren't she and people like her non-participants in the military conflict more protected And I think that, you know, the book that I recently completed, Everyday War, tries to answer that question in part, both from the perspective of of why it is that governments 
um, become either unable or unwilling to protect civilians, but also there's so much that's not visible in the pictures that we see about war. And one of the big surprises for me when I began studying the war in Ukraine was I went expecting to meet victims um, and recipients of humanitarian aid. And what I found was people who were helping themselves, acting on their own behalf, and acting on the behalf of others. Um, and that's pretty much how I came up with this idea of everyday war, which kind of has two components. One component is like these conscious and really creative ways that people were um, part, actually participating um, in, in the conflict in a defensive and strategic way, um, but also the way that their lives were deeply affected and um, down to like pretty much every single relationship, right, was, was affected by the war that was going on around them. Yes, very, very difficult situation. Mm -hmm. And actually, let's talk about your new book, Everyday War. And uh, Greta, in a world where we unfortunately hear about wars every day, what do you mean by everyday war as a title of your book. Yes, yes. Everyday war refers to situations where humanitarian law is not being observed and there is military activity in civilian areas. Those civilians are either targets or simply caught in the crossfire of the military activity. And in that situation, um, I use everyday war to refer to these highly conscious and deliberate um, ways that non-combatants engaged in war. I think Alexandra is a really good example um, from the book. You might recall her. She was the girl who um, dropped her university studies to help her father, provision her father so that he could be part of a volunteer battalion. And she knew that the people he could kill with the supplies that she found him, tactical gloves and night vision goggles, could potentially kill her former neighbors and her friends. But she had to prioritize. And that's what I mean when I say that it's like a very pragmatic um, and self-defensive stance um, that people take to preserve like some connections, right? So everyday war is distinguished from war itself by its objective. Um, and the objective of everyday war is, you know, not, not necessarily to kill, but simply to preserve connections, preserve relationships, and contribute to national defense. Were there any personal stories or let's say moments that particularly resonated with you during the creation of everyday war? Mm. Gosh, you know, it's hard to pick it's hard one to pick only one, but I'll I'll I will pick one. So I will pick a man named Pasha. And Pasha was 
didn't really want to leave the eastern region of Ukraine when the fighting broke out. Um, but it soon became very clear that it was just impossible to stay. So he fled to the other side of the country with his wife. And they had lost everything, their jobs, their home, um, you know, their their friends had scattered. And so they started trying to um, renovate an old shack on the outskirts of Kiev. And what Pasha observed was that pretty soon the neighbors started to drop by and ask them if there was anything they needed. And soon enough, spare windows, doors, um, canned tomatoes started to be dropped off. And Pasha said that, you know, he had always had this existential fear about life. What if, right? Like, and, and this is very relatable. I think we've all had moments where we thought, what if there's a flood? What if the house burns down? What if, what if, what if? And Pasha told me that his dispossession from the eastern part of the country to the west actually relieved those fears for him because he became convinced that no matter what happened, he would be okay, that other Ukrainians would step in and support him to the extent that they were able, right? And so we have this big contradiction here, right, where war is very disruptive to life. Um, however, it also inspires a different kind of relational ethics, um, which are different than like, you know, like the individual, rational person who's self-interested and reasoning his way or her way through life. This is about like moral thinking about human vulnerability and our inherent willingness to assist when we can. And about your book again, your book focuses on forced displacement in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So what motivated you to delve into this specific aspect of the conflict? And how did the events unfolding in Ukraine shape your research and writing process? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, when I was um, given funding from the Fulbright uh, Foundation to be a scholar in Ukraine, I had envisioned an, a, a completely different project um, that had been accepted. But then, of course, um, it was 2014, right? So we think about sort of two phases of war, this kind of lower grade war between 2014 um, and the full-scale invasion in 2022, and then the full-scale war from 2022 to the present. So it was in that phase, right, where Crimea had been occupied and um, there were military maneuvers in the eastern part of the country. And um, it was clear that one of the major dynamics associated with those um, two territorial incursions in Ukraine was the population displacement, right? Like hundreds of thousands of people were being actively displaced by the, the early phase of the war. And so 
kind of like an overarching argument to the book is that that this war in Ukraine is both it's a geopolitical crisis, right? But it's also a humanitarian crisis, right? It's also a crisis of relationships in which, you know, people who used to share a close relationship now have difficulty communicating because they're on opposite political sides. And so I what I wanted to do with the book is really highlight that it's a twin crisis and that the um, the relational crisis and the relational disruption actually is something worth paying attention to because that too, like that is the secret to the resilience that you're that you just mentioned, right? It's all in relationships. And so it makes a lot of sense to pay attention to how does that work, right? Yeah, exactly. And this, it's uh, unbelievable that people are forced to relocate to different cities and countries in mm -hmm. families. And yet the war persists. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So in your opinion, how can the field of anthropology contribute to a more nuanced understanding of war, conflict, immigration, and especially in context where established rules and laws are not being observed. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you asked that question because I really believe strongly that uh, anthropologists can contribute in all of these policy realms. You know, when anthropologists focus on the subjective experience of something like war or population displacement, they get a very close view to how people are thinking about those phenomena. And that makes it more possible to predict what's going to work in the future and the solutions that will be most welcomed. Um, so that's just for starters. But with regards to this particular book, you know, there's already what's called multi-track diplomacy, whereby um, in the international system, we think of these tracks like there's the elite level, formal, then there's the things that like leaders do informally, but then there are other tracks that involve civil society. And they're very important for the sustainability of peace, right? Abundant research has shown that, that peace is more sustainable when civil society is involved and when people are actually supportive of and behind the kinds of peace agreements that are being signed, right? And I believe strongly that um, the policy contribution of the book is to help us think about how to expand those other tracks, right? The tracks that involve civilians who aren't political leaders, but yet have a huge stake in the outcome for their country. Your explanation was just wonderful. Your book is nonfiction. Yes, Greta? Correct. Completely nonfiction. Yes. yes. In fact, I did over 150 taped interviews. 
over the three-year period. Yes. And that is the data, right? That is the material that I then organized and analyzed thematically to come up with Everyday War. Wow. So very much a nonfiction book. Would like to leave a message for our listeners today? Mm, you know, that's a wonderful question. I would say that um, it's very important for people all around the world to support Ukraine's efforts in uh, its national defense, and that these efforts actually have will have um, enormous benefit to peace and security throughout Europe um, and throughout the world. And I, and I really feel like uh, Ukraine is a key to geopolitical stability um, and peace in the world. And that it's very important to support all of their efforts. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And for those interested in delving into your Everyday War book, where can our listeners find your book and, of course, you online? Yes. Um, so the book is available pretty much wherever books are sold. Um, you can either go to a bookseller like Amazon.com and type in the title, Everyday War, or you can go to Cornell University Press website and type in my last name, um, U-E-H-L-I-N-G, um, listeners are more than welcome to like follow me and engage with me and ask me more questions um, on Twitter, which is, um, it's my last name, U-E-H-L-I-N-G at U-M-I-C-H-E-D-1. I'm also on Instagram just with my name, Greta.Euling. Um, and then I have a website, which is GretaEuling.com. Um, and people can uh, engage with me and ask more questions about my work um, or the book um, at any of those places. Sounds great. And I hope one day we can also listen to the interviews. Yeah. 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 Hopefully. And that uh, is a great idea. We have another podcast, Catch the Story. So uh -huh. you're already invited to come. Uh -huh. So okay. That's the story. Wonderful. Of course. And I'll be yeah. checking your book online. I will be also following you. I hope our listeners follow you too and check Everyday War on Greta's website. And Greta, you're always welcome to the RV. Our doors are always open for you. Also, we will be adding your book cover in our next issue of the Relatable Voice magazine and add also your website so more people will be able to find you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I'll definitely reach out when I write my next book so we can talk about that too. I will be looking forward to going okay. to Michigan, but please publish your book, your book during summertime. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very okay. much for your time. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast 
and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening and remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.